Okay, so thanks Nathan and our wonderful actors. Um, so now I'm just going to, um, if you'd like to join me in prayer, I'm just going to pray for Rowan and for us today as we hear from God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to meet together on campus and hear from your Word. Please help us to listen, and I pray that by your Spirit we might respond to what we hear. Please bless Rowan as he speaks, that he would share clearly and faithfully from the message from Genesis today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now we have Declan up to read the passage for us today. So the Bible reading for today is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. If you brought your Bible, now is the time to get it out, but the passage will also be on the screen behind me. So that's Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord... So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Good to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name is Rowan Kemp. The EU has uh, kindly invited me to speak here at the EU public meeting for these first couple of weeks on the opening chapters of the book of Genesis here in the Christian Bible. We just had a little bit read for us from Genesis chapter 2. I myself obviously am not a member of the Evangelical Union. After all, I'm not a student. But I do have this in common with many in the EU. I am an evangelical. I believe that the Christian Bible is authoritative in all matters of faith and conduct because it's God's word to us. And so, as an evangelical, I'm committed to believe whatever the Bible rightly understood is found to teach. Now, notice a couple of careful distinctions there that I just sort of slipped into that particular sentence. I will believe whatever the Bible rightly understood is found to teach. That, I suggest you, is the evangelical commitment to the Bible. Notice a couple of careful things there. I'm not committed to believe whatever the Bible says when it's wrongly understood. I'll give you an example. Um, Here in Micah chapter 7, Micah the prophet in the Old Testament says of the one true God, he says, you will tread out our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Well, given that particular verse, I don't believe that I'm obliged to think that the one true living God has a foot nor that he will literally 
somehow crush our sins with his said foot. Nor do I believe that you can actually go down to the bottom of the ocean with your scuba gear and find there your sins hiding under a shell. Nor can you find mine. I'm sure mine would be much bigger than yours. Micah is clearly writing in Hebrew poetry, right? It's to be understood as such. He's expressing truth, but he's expressing it poetically. It needs to be rightly understood. And similarly, my evangelical commitment to Christian scripture is not to whatever the Bible happens to mention. Rather, the evangelical commitment to the Bible is to whatever the Bible is found to be teaching in a particular passage. So look again at this uh, example from Micah. Does Micah teach in this verse that God does have a foot? It says he does. Is it teaching you that God actually has a foot? No. If you read that passage in Micah 7, which I encourage you to do, it's a great passage, what it teaches in the whole passage is that God, the one true living God, is compassionate to his people and he delights to show them mercy and so he deals with their sin. He utterly destroys their sin. He completely removes their sins from them because he loves them, because he has mercy and compassion on them. And confirmation that that is actually what Micah 7 is teaching is made clear when you read that verse in the rest of the Bible. You remember I said last week, the Bible is never like this. Your Bible is always like this, right? That is, it's not to be read flat. The Bible is an overall uh, account of salvation history and it reaches a climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ, particularly his death and resurrection as recorded for us in the New Testament. When you get to the New Testament you see there that it's Jesus' death on the cross is the moment when God crushes our sins under his foot. It's actually on that hill outside Jerusalem as Jesus hangs on that cross bearing our guilt and our sin and the penalty for those things. There is the place that God hurls our sins into the depths of the sea. So as evangelicals reading the whole of the Bible in all its literary genres with Jesus as the climax and the centre, we're committed to whatever the Bible rightly understood is found to teach. Clearly the challenge then from any particular passage in the Christian Bible is to rightly understand whatever is being taught rather than just what notice whatever is mentioned. The point is what is being taught here in this passage. Now I say all of this by way of preface because we come today to a very challenging chapter of the Christian Bible, Genesis chapter 2. It's a challenge to rightly understand this passage and to identify what God is teaching through it. And I'm going to be completely upfront with you. This chapter is foundational for a lot of controversial topics. Here's a bit of a list I made for myself. The evolution debate in particular, has humanity evolved from other species has humanity originated from a, a single, single original specimen or from a couple or from a group over time? Or, and how does that fit with the Bible? That's one issue. Second issue, discussions around gender. What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? Thirdly, homosexuality. Whether homosexual sex fits within the good intentions of the one true and living God. 
Fourthly, same-sex marriage. Ought marriage be for men and we, uh, men with women and women with men, and those only, or ought it also be for same-sex relationships? Does same-sex marriage fit within God's good intentions and blessings? Uh, fifthly, I think that's what I'm up to. Five, divorce. What's the Bible's view on divorce? How do you live this out? Sixthly, the roles of women and men in church. And then someone pointed out from yesterday, another one. Seventhly, the, the issue of work and its value in the world. All of those issues are quite contentious and all of those find a foundation in this particular chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. So clearly we're not going to be able to cover them all, but my plan is to dive into Genesis 2 and to see what it says, bearing in mind that key question, what does Genesis 2, rightly understood, actually teach? Alright, so if you've got your Bible there, that'd be really helpful. Let's jump into Genesis chapter 2, call it up on your phone. We're going to jump in at chapter, uh, verse 4 of Genesis 2. You can see on the screen there a little bit of some of the headings we're going to look at. We're going to start there with context and the relationship Genesis 2 has to Genesis 1, and we're going to do that by starting with verse 4. Notice what it says there in verse 4. It says, this is the account, or more literally, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now that phrase, these are the generations, is a repeated phrase throughout Genesis. It occurs 11 times. It's a textual marker. The author has used that phrase, these are the generations, to divide up the book because when the, the author wrote it, there were no chapters and verse numbers. It's divided up by this phrase, these are the generations. Normally, it's the generations of a person. These are the generations of Noah or of Shem or of Isaac. But here, in its first use, it's a bit unusual. It's not a person. It's the generations of the heavens and earth. But what does this phrase, these are the generations of, mean? Well, when you look at how it's used throughout the rest of Genesis, you'll see that usually the author uses it to pick up on someone, or in this case, something, pick up on someone that has already been introduced, actually, but is now going to develop that idea, that generation, further. So you can see that when the phrase is used regarding Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, or Shem in chapter 11, verse 10. And so here, in this case, I think the author is actually saying to us, here's what happened next after what I've just described about the heavens and earth in chapter 1. That is, here's what happens after the events in Genesis 1. Now that has some really significant implications for how you read Genesis 2, if that's right. Because that means Genesis 2 is not retelling Genesis 1 just from a different perspective. Given the way it's introduced here in verse 4, maybe we're meant to, we're meant to read Genesis 2 as a subsequent development after what God did in Genesis 1. Now, given that, when you think about that, I'm suggesting to you that maybe Genesis 2 is describing a particular man, who we know as Adam, whom God placed in a particular place, the Garden of Eden, rather than telling you the story of the very first and only man. See, because humankind is created in Genesis 1. 
Maybe humankind, man and woman, was formed in Genesis 1, as it says, and maybe Adam and Eve were, part, were, were among that group, but the story, God's story, of his interactions with humankind is then particularised in Genesis 2 to a particular man, Adam, and a particular woman, Eve, whom God puts in a particular place, the Garden of Eden. Now that's probably a, a bit of a fresh idea for you. Right? You might have heard it suggested in the past that maybe Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 3 are literary creations. They're used by the author to communicate truth, but you're not to understand necessarily them as real figures of history. Now, I must say, I have some sympathy for that view, I understand that, but I'm thinking that the evidence in Genesis itself and the rest of the Bible pushes me to actually towards viewing Adam and Eve as actual individuals. Adam is listed in the genealogies later in Genesis chapter 5. He's listed in the genealogy that Luke gives in the New Testament in Luke 3. Further, the way Adam is dealt with in the New Testament in Romans 5 or 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll look at those passages next week, I think pushes towards us understanding him as a particular historical person. But if Genesis 1 describes the creation of humanity in general, and then Genesis 2 focuses in on one particular couple, Adam and Eve, if that reading is right, that actually does help us unravel some of the problems we often come across trying to understand how Genesis 2 can fit with contemporary science, say, on human development. Where did humanity come from? Maybe Genesis is not actually teaching us that there were only two Homo sapiens on the planet. Maybe it actually helps us understand where Cain's wife came, came from in Genesis 4 without forcing him to marry his sister. Maybe it helps understand why Cain, in Genesis 4 verse 17, builds a city. I mean, why did he build a city if there weren't lots of people? Well, the answer is because he was an, you know, a design and architecture student and they just like building things. They don't care about the people. I know you care deeply about the people. Yet yeah, it does seem God was doing something special here with this particular couple, Adam and Eve, which is why they were singled out. But also what's going to happen with them will turn out to have ramifications for everyone. So what actually then happens in Genesis chapter 2? Well, it's a fairly straightforward narrative. You can divide it up pretty simply if we're moving on from context to now think about content of Genesis chapter 2. It's pretty easy. Here's a, bit, a simple division. Verse 4 is the introduction, which we've just talked about. Verses 4 to 7, the Lord God forms the man from the dust of the ground. Verses 8 to 17, the Lord God creates a garden in, in Eden full of trees which are good for food and good to look at and are watered by plentiful rivers, and he places the man there to work the garden and take care of it. And then in verses 18 to 25, the Lord God determines that the man needs a suitable helper. He brings various animals to the man. The man names those animals, but no suitable helper is found. So the Lord God creates a woman out of the man's rib or side, and the man sees the woman and says, yeah, now, this is what I'm talking about, and... They both get around naked having a fine old time. That's the end of the chapter. 
if you want to then pull the content together and say, right, what's the big picture that God is painting here through this particular chapter, I think you could summarise it like this. Here's the big idea, that God is establishing a people for himself, Adam and Eve, in the place of his choosing, the Garden of Eden, where they will live in his presence, as we'll see when you get to chapter 3, where they can enjoy his bountiful provision, because he provides all these trees and waters and plants and the garden, but they're to work in his particular project. They're there to work and care, work the ground and care for the, the um, garden. So, helpfully, five Ps, right? It's, it's the, and in fact, you can trace that this, that God does this here in the Garden of Eden becomes a really significant idea when you trace it through. Actually, this is what God is doing for humanity for eternity, actually. This is what God ultimately is doing in the Lord Jesus Christ establishing a people for himself in the place of his choosing to live in his presence, to enjoy his bountiful provision and to work in his project. You can use that big idea here from Genesis 2 to understand the whole of the Bible. So there's something worthwhile in that. Yeah? Just a little bit. Okay, so that's what Genesis 2 is saying. It's a fairly straightforward narrative. The challenge then is to rightly understand this passage. What in addition, maybe to this point, is it teaching. And the key fact here to help us is, remember, your Bible is not flat, your Bible is like this, and the New Testament picks up on Genesis 2 in quite a few different places, and that helps us identify some of the truths that are being taught in Genesis 2. So, the way into this is for us then to note that it's clear in the text of Genesis 2 itself that Adam and Eve are more than just a particular historical couple. It's clear in the text itself. Something bigger is going on as it relates this particular account. There's three things to notice here that point in Genesis 2 to the fact that there's a bigger story going on. The names, the forming of these two people and then a comment that the author makes in verse 24, these three things. So let's quickly look at these three things that point in Genesis 2 to the fact that there's a larger story point being made. For a start, their names. Imagine for a moment that I tell you a story, and I tell you a story about two characters, two people. The name of one character is human, and the name of the other character is life. That's what's going on when the text names these two people as Adam and Eve. Human and life or living. Even their names suggest to you that there's a bigger story being told here. Yeah? So just the names themselves suggest that. Secondly, the way Adam and Eve are formed by God in Genesis 2 is meant to tell us something about the nature of being human. It's meant to tell us about ontology, right? the study of being. It's meant to tell us something about what it means to be human. It's not telling us just about their chemical composition. In fact, I don't think it's even telling you about their chemical composition. It's teaching you something about human ontology, about the nature of being human. Let's uh, dig into this a little bit. Have a look there in verse 7. 
it says that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. The key point being made here is that dust is a sign of our mortality. You can see this when you get to chapter 3 verse 19 when the Lord says to Adam, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam and Eve were not created immortal in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were mortal like you and me. The difference in the Garden of Eden was that they had access to the Tree of Life, which God had provided as the antidote to their created mortality. It preserved them from death. You can see that in Genesis 3 verse 22. And it was that access to the Tree of Life that was then removed from them when they rejected God their Creator and which brought about ultimately their death, which we'll see next week. So the dust is a sign of their mortality. Now you get confirmation of this, that this is actually what's being taught, when you look at the way Genesis 2 is picked up when you come through to the New Testament. Now Paul, the Apostle, writing on the other side of Jesus' astounding resurrection from the dead, when God the Father powerfully broke the bonds of death, and restored Jesus to real, physical, immortal life, Paul then says this in 1 Corinthians 15, thinking about Genesis 2. He says, The first man, meaning Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, now second man, he's not talking about Adam's son, Cain and Abel. He's not, who's the, the second man he's talking about is Jesus. So even in the way he's using First and second is not literal. It's to be understood in terms of what they're signifying, their archetypes, if you like. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, talking of Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, when will that happen? When, when will you be transformed from being a person of dust to being a person of sort of heavenly immortality? Well, he goes on to say, it's when the Lord Jesus, living and reigning, when he returns. And then he continues in verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, that is, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. See how he links mortality to dust? Right? That's what the dust is signifying, mortality. So when it says Adam was formed from dust, guess what? This passage is very clear. So are we, right? Not chemically, ontologically, in terms of your being. We are mortal. Death is the tsunami that catches us all eventually. You just cannot outswim it. But the good news of the Christian gospel is that there is hope even for our mortal bodies under the curse of death. A certain hope, because we've seen in one person 
they have already been brought through it to everlasting immortality, Jesus himself in his physical resurrection from the dead. And the promise of the Christian gospel is that for all who put their trust in him that you too will be raised immortal. So that's about the forming of the man. What about the forming of the woman? Well, we heard in the part of the Bible we had read that God wanted to provide a suitable helper. That was mentioned twice there, verse 18 and verse 20. Suitable helper for the man. Uh, Just important to think about that phrase, helper. It's important to note that helper in no way, when it's used in the Bible, in no way denotes a subservient or secondary place. The most commonly named helper in the Old Testament is the living God himself. He's described repeatedly as the helper of his people Israel. You can look it up in, say, Psalm 29 or Isaiah 41. So helper, to be a helper, never means to take second place to the person you're helping. The word suitable is a bit more tricky. It has the sense in the Hebrew of uh, being like or as something, but it also has in the word a sense of opposite to. Like and opposite to. So, in different English translations render it as a helper fit for the man or corresponding to the man or complementing the man. The woman is indeed like the man but different and uniquely equipped by God to help, to help the man because the man needs help. Now, how the woman is then formed starts to make a little bit of sense. If the woman is like but different to the man... She's taken from his rib or side, she's like him, but then built by the Lord in her own unique way. Look at verses 21-22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made or built into a woman and brought her to the man. This is telling us more about the ontology, about the being of woman. Certainly it's not really telling you about the material composition of a female body. Women are uniquely formed by God to be similar but different to men. Neither, though, is completely independent of the other. Now this is also made clear when you zoom through to the New Testament and see what it makes of this, again in 1 Corinthians, this time in chapter 11. But particularly the way it's applied here by the Apostle Paul is with respect to marriage and the relationships between husbands and wives, particularly as that gets expressed in church. Now, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians is a difficult passage. I've preached through 1 Corinthians here at the EU before. They're all there online and you can go and listen. I give a whole talk on 1 Corinthians 11. 40 minutes of goodness. And I'm going to give you three sentences to summarise it. So if you can't quite grab all this, that's okay, there's a whole talk you can go away and listen to on the bus this afternoon. There is clearly in Corinthians a problem in the way the Corinthian Christians are doing church together. And part of what is involved is the cultural expression wives and husbands were giving that was communicating either respect or disrespect for one another in the church gathering. In their cultural context, it involved head coverings because head coverings were viewed as an appropriate expression of a wife's respect for her husband and ultimately her respect for Christ as a Christian and 
no head covering was the appropriate expression of a husband's respect for Christ and for his wife. The head covering itself, I suggest, was just a cultural expression, though, of a deeper truth, which then Paul points back to from Genesis 2. He says here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8, he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. You didn't get the angels bit? You didn't see how that fit into the argument? No one does. Like seriously, you go and look up what the scholars say on this and there are more than 50 interpretations of what because of the angels might mean in this context. So we don't know. Okay, let's just be honest. We don't, because of the angels. You can have your own theory and write your own scholarly article. Go for it. But in case that gets misunderstood, and if you know the book of Corinthians, you know the Corinthians were super good at taking what Paul said and then misapplying it and misunderstanding it. He then goes on. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. So he's saying you've all got to respect each other as husbands and wives in the Christian community. Because that goes back to Genesis 2 and it was to be given appropriate cultural expression in their own context. Okay, you want to hear more, you can check it out on the website. But you can see how Genesis 2, though, is understood within the Bible itself as articulating a relationship that exists between husbands and wives. So both the forming from dust and the forming from the side of the man tells us about our humanity and our relationships, actually, rather than our composition. Now, I've already chucked out a lot of information today and some of you are going, okay, that's, I've not thought about that before, that's new, that's new too. I'm really not sure I agree with that. You know what? You may not well agree with everything I've said today. You might not agree with my reading of Genesis 2 or the other parts of the Christian Bible that I've brought to bear and try to rightly understand Genesis 2. That is okay. As evangelicals, we believe the one true living God rules through his word and we take the Bible as the authority, not me nor any other human teacher because all human teachers are fallible. The authority lies with God in his word. Now, I'm sure, try as hard as I have, there are parts of this text that I have not yet understood fully or maybe even understood rightly. Now, at one level, that's just appropriate epistemic humility, right? None of us know everything. Even what God has revealed to us in the Bible, we need to seek to rightly interpret. But it's also appropriate evangelical humility. We want to stand humble before God in his word and with the wisdom given by his spirit, seek to understand his word to us and to the world with all the care and insight we can. And so you may disagree with how I've started to put some of these pieces together. That's fine. But let's talk about it with our Bibles open and our hearts humble before the text, before God who inspired the text and before each other. But let's also use all the wisdom he gives to understand rightly what the Bible is found to teach. And let's make sure that as we discuss these issues and seek a right understanding, let's do it modelling the grace and patience and love that the Lord God has shown us. Because let me tell you, unloving theological correctness does not bring honour to Jesus. But then neither does very kind and loving theological falsehood. 
What we want is love with truth. Because that way Jesus might be glorified in each of us and in our life together as his people. Okay, end of little aside about disagreeing well. Coming to the end. We were talking about the different indicators in the text that something greater is happening. Well, I've been through the first two, the names and the forming. Here's the third one. It's that the author makes their own comment at the end of the chapter, verse 24. He says there, after the woman is brought to the man, the author then comments, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The author at this point is explicitly drawing a universal explanation about marriage from the details of this particular account. And notice he actually uses the word wife. A bigger point is being made here than just, hey, this is what happened to Adam and Eve. There's a bigger point here about marriage. What's the point he's making? Well, if you stop to think about it for a moment, what are the most natural relational bonds that you have as you enter the world? It's with your parents, your biological parents, right? Now, there are all sorts of reasons why those natural biological bonds might be broken. But, but just if all things are equal and if all things are good, given those natural biological bonds, you might well ask, why would you leave your father and your mother and start a new family? And you're saying, well, you don't know my parents. It's completely <laughs> obvious why you would... But others are saying, yeah, actually, why would I leave? I mean, free internet. Like, why, why would I go anywhere else? It's all provided for me here. Well, if here is the Bible's answer to what actually is a very sensible question, is it? Why would you leave your, your parents? The Bible's answer is because there is a significant complementarity that is part of God's general plan for humanity that can be realised in a man-woman marriage. Notice the way Genesis 2 works, right? The woman is taken from the side of the man, uniquely like him but opposite to him. His flesh of my flesh, the man says, and then they come together as man and wife. They are joined, they united, and in fact, we're told they become one flesh again. Part of this coming together and one fleshness is to do with sexual intercourse, but I think here in the text it's more than just about sex and procreation. You know, the having of kids. Though having of kids is part and parcel of God's plan for humanity to fill the earth and subdue it. But it's actually about starting a new family, a new family unit whose bonds between husband and wife are not blood. The bonds are tighter than blood. It's one flesh itself. The bond is this tighter bond of a lifelong covenant promise of marriage. The commitment to love the other for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. But this raises several questions, right? First of all, what about homosexual sex? Uh, this passage in Genesis 2 does, I believe, set up a God-blessed norm of heterosexual activity. But am I rightly understanding Genesis 2 if I read it as setting up that sort of norm? Well, the rest of the Bible's treatment of homosexual sex, I think, would say, yes, 
the God-blessed norm for sexual activity is man and with woman within the lifelong commitment of marriage. You can see this in several other places. Romans 1 in the New Testament would be a key place to go, I think, to see this. But it is a consistent message, I would suggest, across the Old and New Testaments, where all sexual intercourse outside of male-female lifelong marriage is not God's good intention for us. That applies equally to married people who have extramarital affairs, to homosexual sex or to heterosex when you're not married to the person. But what about if you're same-sex attracted? Well, then God's call to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that like anyone who's not in a male-female marriage, God's good desire for you is that you live in sexual holiness and purity and abstain from sex. But you do so not in your own strength. You do so with the strength he provides from his spirit living within you. You do it with the guidance he provides in his word, in the Christian scriptures. And you do it with the encouragement and support that he provides through his people. We live out a holy life for the Lord Jesus together, not just as individuals. And you know what? Living out a holy life for the Lord Jesus is not something you, any of us can do on our own. It's not something that God intends for any of us to do on our own. That's why he's given us his spirit, his word and his people. So we need to make sure that Christian communities like the EU, like our churches, are safe places for people to share their struggles, their temptations and we need to make sure that he is providing the supportive network that the living God intends his people to be as we all seek to live out holy lives. Which then raises the next issue about singleness. Is Genesis 2, if it's setting up a God-blessed norm of male-female marriage, what about singleness? Well, the New Testament is very clear that singleness is, is not second, second place. Singleness is fantastic. It's a good state of life to be in. Uh, Jesus himself, I'll remind you, was a single guy. Paul, the apostle, prefers singleness for himself for the sake of Jesus' kingdom, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But he never forces it on other people. He, he wishes people thought would choose as he does, but he says it's up to you. You've got freedom there. Jesus is very clear that there's no marriage in heaven, so actually... We're all destined for the single life for eternity and those who live a single life now loving Jesus amongst God's people, they are a sign to all of us of our future. And so we need to make sure that Christian communities make the single life, focusing on Christ, good and rich and relationally strong and sustainable. And just a little word, beware the idolatry of marriage and relationships, thinking that if only I get married, then everything will be fine. That is an idol that we often set up for ourselves. It can never deliver everything that you think it's promising. Beware of that idolatry. Which brings us then to my conclusion. 
Uh, Paul picks up that comment at the end of chapter 2 and gives it a profound, profound, divinely inspired insight. He says this, he says, quoting Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That is, what we've been reading in Genesis 2 about this male-female marriage, it's actually a shadow, an earthly shadow, of a greater, more profound and eternal reality. The ultimate eternal marriage, if you like, is of Jesus and the church. That doesn't mean that Jesus is going to dress up in a suit and we all have to get dressed up together in one big dress, right? It's, not, it's a marriage in inverted commas, right? The All earthly marriages, no matter how good, are but pale shadows of that greater, more profound and eternal unity of the Lord Jesus with his people. We really are his. He really is ours. He's the head, we're the body. He's the first fruits from the dead, we're the rest of the harvest. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. He's the groom, we're the bride. But what is so astounding about this marriage and what so many of our earthly marriages fail to image and reflect is that his love for us is seen in his self-sacrifice on the cross so that our sins can be crushed under his foot, so that our sins can be cast into the depths of the sea. He gave up his own life under the wrath of God so that we might be saved. That, see, is the greatest love story you could tell, much greater than Adam and Eve in the garden, much greater than any earthly marriage, and guess what? You are at the focus of it. He loved you so much that he gave his life. Well, that's some reflections on Genesis chapter 2. I hope you can join us next week for Genesis chapter 3 as we see this great, wonderful picture from Genesis 2. How come it all got so messed up? That's next week, Genesis 3. Before to see you then. Think you're going to send us out? Okay, thanks for that, Rowan. Um, as Rowan said, there's a lot of information we've processed in the last sort of 40 minutes, so I'd encourage you guys to take this time if you're free to be talking to one another, asking questions, discussing the passage and some of the stuff that you might have found tricky. Um, yeah, it's a really good time to be able to engage further yourself um, and, and answer some of those questions um, in this place of community. So if you'd just like to join me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to have in your word and we thank you for how you have acted in the world. Thank you that we um, have the Bible to be able to engage with and we know that you have created humankind in your own image. Um, We pray as we engage further with your word, I pray that you would help us to rightly understand and that we might be able to appropriately respond to what we hear. We thank you for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and that through him we can be made right with God. And we pray that here on campus, um, through Jesus' power and might, that we might be your people in this place and that by your provision we might be able to act according to your will for us. We pray that our community here and that our lives would be marked with your love and in your truth that we find in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.